Hello, and welcome to the Problem With Men podcast. We're here to investigate the challenges facing modern men and hopefully give a nudge towards some kind of solution. Today, we're talking bollocks, but it's for a good reason as we explore the world of fertility. You're listening to the Problem With Men podcast. Between 1973 and 2011, sperm counts in Western countries have plummeted by 59%. In 1950, women were having an average of 4.7 children in their lifetime. But globally, the fertility rate has nearly halved to 2.4 by 2017. In England and Wales, the birth rate hit an all-time low in 2018 down from a high of 20.5 live births per thousand people to just 11.1. Social changes mean we're waiting until we're older to have children. And while women have always been aware of their biological clock, there is a best before date for men too, around the age of 40. If these birth decreases continue, this could be the end of humankind. Scientists in China searching for an answer have successfully fathered mice with lab-grown sperm, and the University of California have produced the first lab-grown human sperm stem cells. So maybe it's only game over for men. I mean, I don't think that we're facing that in any time soon. Okay, so maybe I was being a bit dramatic. Professor Richard Sharp is a principal investigator at the Medical Research Council's Centre for Reproductive Health. And what somebody should, clever person should point out is, but ah, but you're forgetting about sex, aren't you? You know, that nobody is going to want to start doing without sex. Um, so th- there, there is that element still um, still there to actually, if you like, keep us on the, uh, the, the what I would call the straight and narrow. But no, I think we are... We under investment in uh, in research and understanding in male reproductive development and function, you know, has consequences which are much broader uh, than those. Just for example, you know, lots of men having low sperm counts. I think there are lots of other implications, and it does mean that we create a sort of a um, a vacuum within which it's possible for people to um, who will exploit the system by making sperm in the lab, but not being bothered whether or not they're safe to use, etc. Um, that it will happen somewhere in the world. And, uh, you know, human nature being what it is, if, 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 if you want a baby and somebody in the world is offering, yes, we can do that for you no matter what. So why are people trying to create sperm in labs? The, the issue that we've been seeing is with sperm counts that for the best evidence that we have suggests that sperm counts have fallen progressively by over 50% during the last 60 or so years. And um, opinion is a little bit divided as to what might be behind the, uh, that cause. I think the simple uh, take-home message is that we don't know. Um, and not knowing means that we're rather hamstrung in what we can do about it in particular because there are really no effective treatments for a low sperm count. We can't correct it in any way 
apart from a very small subset of uh, people with very specific um, problems. In, in general, if a man has a low sperm count, not only will we not know what caused it, but there's nothing that we can effectively do about it. No treatment that we can apply um, in comparison with what would be the case with uh, uh, female infertility, for example. It's mainly uh, an issue of, of quantity, but I think that um, we need to sort of face up to begin with the fact that uh, human, the quality of human sperm is um, atrocious. That's the only way to describe it. So we're struggling to muster up the numbers and those we do create are mostly useless. Uh, if we compare with most animals, um, then morphologically, so how the sperm look, um, you know, only something like five to seven percent of sperm in the ejaculate of a normal fertile male are would be classed as normal. Um, so most of the sperm we make are dodgy to a greater or lesser degree, which is a, 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 an amazing statistic. Um, so that means that uh, sperm count does matter because once your sperm count gets low, it means that the chances of one of those good sperm uh, meeting the egg and fertilizing it uh, is reduced. It is simply a numbers game. Um, but it doesn't mean that if you have a high sperm count that all will be well, because you know you may have a, a, a defect with all of your sperm, for example. And at the other end of the scale, you might have a low sperm count, but uh, you've got the good luck that one of your good sperm meets, uh, meets the egg and fertilizes it. So we should probably start to seriously take notice of the advice to avoid hot baths and stop wearing tight underwear. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of the things that might surprise people because uh, they will often think, oh, well, you know, fertility, you know, you're not even interested in fertility or reproduction until um, you reach puberty. And OK, it may become all consuming then. But what they don't realize is that uh, when you go back to the time when the uh, the egg is fertilized by the sperm, then even before you have a, a fetus, before you have anything that's recognizable as a fetus, the first event that happens is that the germ cells, the cells that will give rise to future sperm or an egg in that individual are set aside. It's almost the very first event that happens. So fertility Reproduction is something that is is always top of the list for being decided. That's what we're here. That's what we're made for. You know, um, our reason for being is to pass on our genes. Um, so it's it's critical. And for example, from the male perspective, then all the equipment that you're going to need to make sperm and to deliver them to the female, all of that is in place by uh, the end of the first trimester of pregnancy. So when the fetus is about three to five centimeters long, it's all there. It's all been done, all been set up. Okay, you're not actually making sperm at that time. You've only got the, the fetal germ cells present, but they're the cells that will, give, uh, will be used to make the sperm once you hit puberty. And it's during that critical period before the end of the first trimester that you set up the male reproductive system. And that's when if things go wrong, 
that you're going to find out uh, either at birth, if it's uh, an abnormality, for example, a, an undescended testis or an abnormality of penis development, or if it's to do with reproductive function, you're going to find out as a young adult or uh, middle age, whenever it will be, but sometime after puberty. And on the female and the female side, of course, all the eggs that uh, a woman will ever have, she has at birth. So it's equally important in the female side that everything is determined um, before that period. You can't increase them after birth, uh, at least as far as we currently understand things. So we potentially have low levels of sperm, and 95% of those are dodgy. What happens when we want to start a family? My granddad was 78 when he had my dad. Um, and he was about 81 when he had his last kid. So I always have that in mind that, no, this is just something that happens, isn't it? it doesn't, we're not affected by age yet. We are. Um, the, the shape of the sperm or the sort of the, um, some of the other sort of factors that come into it can sort of denigrate with age, not nearly so sort of significantly as, as um, you know, some of the impact of being over sort of 45 from a female perspective, but it, but it is there. Um, and I think, again, you know, one of the things, you just don't realise how long it takes and, and actually how lucky you need to be in order to get pregnant naturally. Chris Lawson and his partner struggled to start a family without fertility treatment. As a way to raise awareness, Chris shared his fertility story on his podcast, IVF Dad. And it's only when you're at that point with your partner and you go, right, we, we need to try now and you go, fine, yeah, let's get on with it. That sounds great. And then six, you know, three months later, six months later, one year later, nothing's happened. You think, well, this is, this is something that we probably should look to have some support on and and as I sort of said in my podcast the cast the the one of the key moments for me was when you're sat in my consulting room and I sort of almost sort of felt I was taking a secondary role in a way almost like supporting cast and then the spotlight falls on you and you think hang on this this could equally be me this could be my challenge my issue that's sort of contributing to this sort of physically um and and it's a it's a very sobering moment, um, and I think that there's a a lack of awareness out there um, until you're actually in that moment. The thing is, from sex education to the point where you actually want to start a family, most of us think of pregnancy as the worst thing in the world. From the sex ed given in my school, they give the impression that merely standing next to a female for a prolonged period of time can result in a dreaded unwanted pregnancy. So as we navigate life trying to avoid accidental babies, doubling upon contraception and hoping that we're doing enough, we're vastly overestimating what's needed to conceive. Unlike women who are a little bit more aware of their biological clock. For most individuals, um, there is a predetermined script, if you will, in their heads. Uh, they will get an education. They will decide what they want to do to earn a living. They will meet someone with whom they plan on spending the rest of their life, and then they will raise a family. Dr. William Peacock is a psychologist from Baltimore who specializes in reproductive health care. And when that doesn't happen, that can be a tremendous shock 
um, psychologically, emotionally, um, because it disrupts the planning, even though it may not have been very clear, um, but has been a, sort of a subtext for how one's life will go. And in fact, there is significant data that suggests that many people um, are unaware of what a fertility window looks like. This is true for both men and women, um, that um, the age when fertility becomes more complex and complicated is much sooner than many people think. So for women, we typically think of 35 as that age. Um, and women tend to be better prepared for this because when they begin menstruating, they typically get some kind of reproductive health care. Men, on the other hand, uh, outside of any sex education that they might get in uh, school, are not well prepared for it because they don't have regular visits with a medical professional discussing reproductive health. The reality is that even in a healthy couple, conception is a tricky thing. Each month, there's around a 15% chance of a pregnancy. So don't panic if things don't happen right away. Infertility isn't even diagnosed until a couple has been trying for at least 12 consecutive months. But of course, for many of us, we're waiting until we're older to start a family, which isn't ideal, as Richard Sharp highlights. I, I think we're, um, we're caught in a perfect storm, if you like, because um, if a man has a low sperm count and his partner is uh, supremely fertile, then it's still likely, therefore, that she will get pregnant, that um, her fertility is so good that one of, his, um, one of his good sperm, even if there aren't that many of them, will find the egg on uh, one or more occasions. Um, the problem is when her fertility is not so good, because then, obviously, it's a simple numbers game. Your chances of that um, meeting of sperm and egg happening or a sperm and a good egg happening is very much reduced. And the problem with couples now leaving, uh, starting uh, their family until she's in her 30s, then so in your mid-30s, your fertility is already reduced by about 40% for a woman I'm talking about now, compared with in her early 20s. And it's going progressively progressively downhill and beyond about 40 43 something like that it's going to fall off the edge of a cliff so we, we've we've created a if you like a perfect storm for couple infertility by having a you know, high proportion of young men of the current generation with low sperm counts um, and uh, with a partner whose fertility is on the decline and is certainly beyond what um, would be optimal. Chris and his partner initially tried to conceive naturally, but eventually realised they'd need some extra help. We uh, tried naturally for a, for a year, um, pretty much, and, and we just thought time is not on, the, on our side. And um, like I said, you know, we were aware of a sort of the fact that actually sort of fertility rates in um, females drops quite considerably when you're around the 40 mark. So we we probably went earlier in a way than than a lot of couples to say, look, let's let's go and get checked out now. Let's go and understand where we're at. 
have some tests and and uh, and see what happens. So so we effectively went for a bit of an MOT and um, when and uh, yeah and again. I thought most of it was going to be centered on Trish, but at, at least half of that was all centered on me as well. And, uh, you know, we sort of come back and it was only at that point when they're sort of reading to me my sort of uh, my results. And you're thinking, geez, that doesn't sound great at all. And, and, the, and the, the bottom line is, is that actually none of the, the sort of the sperm fertility results sounds sound great when you go into it. I can't remember the exact measures now, but it's only like sort of six percent on average of um sperm are like normal in terms of their makeup anyway. And mine was about three percent. You know, so when you're thinking about three percent, that sounds really bad. But when you're thinking about three versus six, it doesn't sound so bad. Um so we knew quite early on after we had those tests that we would need help. Chris's concerns were fair. And around half of couples who struggle with fertility, it's the male partner that has the issue. Now let's make this podcast a little more interactive. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of an andrologist. Give up. So andrology is the area of medicine that deals specifically with medical conditions related to men. And in particular, it it looks at the reproductive system in men. So really, it's it's the sort of male equivalent of gynaecology, if you like. Professor Shoal Homer is a clinical scientist and honorary professor of andrology at the University of Kent. In 2007, she set up Andrology Solutions, a specialist male fertility clinic. And all fertility clinics in the UK have to be licensed by the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, but our clinic is the only clinic that's licensed by this authority in the UK that specialises specifically in male infertility. So we're quite unique in that respect. Despite the male partner being the subfertile one in half of all couples struggling to conceive, fertility is still very much seen as a women's health issue. But infertility in men is an issue, and it's one that's mostly ignored in terms of further investigation or treatment? It's not so much for the women, but it is especially so for the men. Because as I mentioned before, male infertility is a condition. And in all other areas of medicine, if you have a condition, you are investigated for that condition and treatment is offered for that condition. If you can't treat the condition, you then have to come up with an alternative. So for example, if you have some cardiac issues, you're investigated for that, you might be given a stent, you might be given some medication, you aren't immediately referred for a heart transplant. And, and I think this is, this is something that we're quite happy to do with, with subfertile couples, um, which we wouldn't do in any other field of medicine. And I think that IVF treatment is very much overused and in many cases it may not be necessary and that means that we're training the NHS for treatment that might not be necessary or for people who have to pay privately the cost to them is you know is is huge and the emotional impact of IVF as well on couples is not to be forgotten either. 
And men must be investigated properly because there are several conditions which which we might be able to treat them for. And they may end up having perfectly healthy, natural conceptions without the need for ever going for IVF treatment. So this is a, a real lack in the medical field, unfortunately, and not pursuing proper investigation and treatment for the men. So treating infertility in men might mean couples can avoid expensive and invasive IVF treatment. But then again, if you investigate men properly in the first place, and you deal with things like baricocele and other things that can be problematic, then you may not have to go for IVF. You may improve your semen parameters. You may improve the quality of the genetic material in the sperm. And you may go on to have perfectly healthy, natural pregnancies without the need for IVF. You know, I think it's it's a question of stages. It's like anything else. When you treat somebody, you always need to be treating with the least invasive procedures first and see if those work. And then if it doesn't, you then go on to more uh, more in-depth procedures, something like IVF, for example. Richard Sharp agrees. So I, I, I think that men are have not been making a noise, and that's one of the reasons why we've had a... Uh, the area has been under-researched and we have such poor understanding about causes of male infertility and an almost uh, complete lack of treatments for remedying it or or indeed for inducing infertility for contraceptive purposes in men. It's a big contrast with the female. And the other thing is that the, 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 where the big success story has come from in uh Managing infertile couples is assisted reproduction, and in particular, uh, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI, um, because that has made it possible to, to um, obtain a pregnancy in couples where it was previously just not possible. But the success of that is actually part of the problem, um, because it's a, it creates a paradox because what people have done is to say, right, we just go to ICSI. If you're a couple have problems, we're not going to bother about, you know, doing any work up on the male. It's just go in, grab a sperm, grab a good sperm if we can find one and inject it into the egg. And all the, um, the medical treatments that have come out of that have been about um, treating the female partner to ensure that she has a good supply of the best eggs that can be collected on the right time. And it, so it's it's managing that side of it. And what you do with the, ma- the male is just grab the sperm. Um, and that means that you, you create this unique situation in medicine that we're actually, because the, the problem is with the male, but what you're doing is you are um, treating the female. And it's pretty invasive treatment, um, uh, uh, assisted reproduction. It's you know, quite a bruising um, period of treatment for the female uh, and let alone the uh, emotional and psychological aspects. And, uh, but it's to manage a male problem. And, you know, we've sort of been saying that, you know, women should be standing up and saying, well, this isn't right. You know, Um, we've had a raw deal as it is for other, lots of other reasons. Why are we actually having to undergo this treatment? You know, because of, there isn't something developed for the male. Why don't? Why is there nothing developed for the male? Um, 
But, you know, that's the way we are. And of course, um, you know, women um, tend to be very proactive when it comes to fertility. So they will undergo those um, um, tribulations to actually achieve it. But it, I think from a moral point of view, it's it's very questionable. So you've been struggling for at least a year. Test results aren't great. Is it as simple as ordering one baby, please? Chris Lawson. And and I think this can be one of the most bewildering things around fertility treatment is the fact that actually, you know, this this isn't like a, you know, sort of a, a menu, a set menu. This is more like a bit of a pick and mix. And it can be absolutely overwhelming because you're not really sure, one, what half of things mean or whether they, you need to have them. So you're really reliant on the time of the um, your your expert, your consultant, putting together the package that you need as a couple. Um, so you can do an, a lot of research and some stuff is relatively straightforward, but until you're in there and you find out what your specific challenges are, you know, they, they don't put that package together. So you have to consider what sort of treatment that you're going to need, how much you can afford to spend on that or prepare to spend as a couple, um, let alone before they then say, well, actually, in your specific case, I don't think ICSI, for example, is appropriate. Um, you're going to need to do X, Y and Z instead. And suddenly there's this this price menu and you think, OK, so that one looks pretty expensive and that drug's really expensive. And now we need to go for another round of tests. And, and, and that, I think, is the bewildering bit. It's not just as simple as I go in and I pick IVF off the shelf. In the UK, at least, accessing fertility treatment via the NHS can be tricky. There are strict criteria and the availability of treatments can vary by location. Treatment via a private fertility clinic in the UK can cost around £5,000 per cycle. It's not often that you have to go into Boots and hand over £400 for a prescription, um, that's for certain. Um, so I think that was just a bit of a shock, that actually it's the cost of the prescription drugs that um, are a significant part of the overall cost. But the financial pressure, I think, is is slightly different it, it does put pressure from a perspective as in you're having to make choices um which uh you know it's like do we do another round of fertility treatment or do we do we uh, go on holiday we put off getting married for a couple of years i drove drove the same car around for 17 years um, yeah it's all that, all that type of stuff um but i think the reality is is that when you're seeing your your life savings start to dwindle away due to fertility treatment or suddenly it's, it's starting to bite into the fact that now I haven't got the deposit for the house um, that I thought I had, then it, 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 can, it can really make you think about, well, what is important and what, what do you want? Um, and there is a reality as well, which is it's, it's hard to call time on something when it means so much to you. enjoying this podcast support our work by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app the problem with men podcast regardless of the treatment you decide to go for the whole fertility thing is an emotional challenge from the very outset you're likely to face a complex set of emotions dr william peacock the, the stress of not knowing 
what the outcome will be. Most of us are far more comfortable when we know what to anticipate. And there are a lot of unknowns here. So that's one stressor. But certainly the cost, um, depending upon where you live and what kind of coverage there might be, can be exceptional. Um, the, um, the, the fact that all too often when going for fertility treatment, the watchword is hurry up and wait. Um, so everybody wants to get everything done quickly. However, there are some things which must take place based on a 28-day cycle, and you can't make time go faster than it can go. Um, if a lab is backed up, um, stuff can't get done quicker. Um, with the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, many clinics were shut down for a period of 10 weeks here in the U.S. anyway, and perhaps longer elsewhere. Um, those delays caused backups in the system, some of which are just beginning to sort themselves out. Chris Lawson. Um, you know, it has to be very much about you as a couple and seeing that having a family is something that would help make your lives even more perfect than they are. And, and we were really conscious of that, that we didn't want this to be the, the reason that we were a couple or the be-all and end-all. Um, and, and I think that is important because people can get completely caught up in that emotional journey, which is fertility treatment, um, right from the start, very early days. And, and, but it's also full of hope as well. It's full of quite a lot of excitement and expectation. You know, once you do your research and you realise that sort of one in six of babies are, are born by fertility treatment or require some sort of support, and you think, well, well, that's great. We're just part of the system and get into it. I think the toughest moment is when that first round of treatment doesn't work, which happens quite a lot. Not for everyone, but it is quite a significant proportion, especially the older you get. And you go around that cycle around again and again and again. You know, from our perspective, you know, but we tried over five years, countless rounds of IVF and uh, 18 embryos in total um, that time. And we had to make some sort of life-changing decisions, really. Um, that, and keeping that faith throughout that whole of that process was incredibly hard so yeah very very emotional right from the start but probably gets more emo emotional as you get further along the journey it is a roller coaster it is full of highs as well as lows um now there is a there is an amazing moment when you decide to do that as a couple and you are a team you have to be a team with this and this is something that um you know you have to participate in as much as you possibly can as the as the male partner, um, because I think it's, it's that's really really important. And then, like I say, you know, you're, it's full of hope. This is about quite often a, a very very significant financial commitment to help you reach your dreams, and so you put everything into it. Um, but that can be followed by some significant lows as well. Um, sadly, as a as a result of um, justice, you're, you're almost more. Um, likely to sort of experience either the, the low of finding out a um, you know, nothing is implanted or nothing is fertilized or that your partner has only managed to they've only managed to sort of get three 
three eggs to use rather than nine or whatever it is. So there are just so many factors that can really sort of knock your confidence, let alone the fact that sometimes you can have the absolute high of a pregnancy test and, and you think this is it, we've got there, and then to be faced with miscarriage after that. So I always say it's 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 almost like every single step is not like a finish line. It's like another step in the journey. So it's like the finish line is just being pulled further and further away from you. And you don't realize how many stages you need to get through to actually get to that finish line. Typically, men are supposed to be in that role of being the supportive one, the sturdy oak, if you will, lean on me and I will take care of you. And the feeling amongst many men that I've talked to is, I can't really talk about how I feel because my job is to be strong and supportive. If I acknowledge that I am stressed, depressed, unhappy, you pick the term that doesn't sound good, um, I will not be doing my job. Because actually you do, spe- you do see your role almost as a bit of a coach, or, or that's how I sort of saw it. It was, uh, you know, su- support, coach, come on, this one didn't work, but let's dust ourselves off and try again. And, and, and also you can feel pretty helpless because you're not the one that has been pumped full, in dr- uh, full of drugs, you know, hormone drugs, which you know, do, do affect you and can affect you. Um, you're there very much providing mental support, but you're not re- physically, you don't really have to do a lot. So, so that for me was one of the big things to, to actually realize that I needed to focus on my emotions and how I was feeling. And that although I couldn't carry the physical burden, I was carrying at least 50% of the, the mental burden as well. And the second thing was to try and make sure I was as involved physically as I possibly could. And that, that meant two things practically. The first one was when it came to doing the injections, the hormone injections, and you have to do a lot of injections um, during fertility treatment. Um, I was injecting my partner, my wife, Trish, um, which isn't fun, wasn't great for her, wasn't great for me, but it was a, it was a bit of a ritual which, which helped bring us together. And I also went to as many of the scans as I possibly could. Um, and again, you know, you, you're sat there looking at the floor quite often as someone's sort of putting another condom on another ultrasound wand and your wife's on a table. But I, I wanted to be there through that process to know that she wasn't going through that alone. And again, you can feel a bit like a spare part, but I feel it was very, very important for us as a couple. Um, so, so making those connections and trying to be part of that as a team, I think, is, is hugely valuable. The, um, the interesting thing about the hospital, like I said, we had to go through um, private um, uh, and we went through the list of hospital and, and they were they were incredibly good. And uh, the consultant was with us for the whole of that journey. And really, I felt that they cared and we were offered counseling support throughout that whole journey we didn't take it for a lot of it um but after about sort of four or five years and and actually wondering whether this was ever going to happen for us and whether we were going to have a family and as we were starting to consider other options like donation egg donation or sperm donation or adoption um of a like i actually went and got some counseling support and I, and I did that outside the hospital and I did that 
just for me because I wanted a space where I didn't need to feel that I was on show and I had to be that positive role model and could really talk about my fears and doubts in the process as well. Um, that was that was a moment. But in a way, this was part of why I set up IVF Dad, because I sat in that, meeting, that waiting room and you look around and there's probably about 15 people in there and, and some of the, the females in there are talking to each other and about what stage of the process they're at. And there's one other guy and and he's on his phone and I'm on my phone. I think, do you know what I could really do with someone to talk to right now? And and that's why, in a way, I wanted to set up the podcast to to provide that outlet and that personal experience to to help other um, people going through the process now. The support group is um, it, it's one of the highlights of my month. I will be, you know, I, I'm very happy and confident to say that I absolutely love running the support group and the reason I love it so much is because I see the difference it makes uh, in men's lives it's absolutely phenomenal. Ian Stones runs a monthly online support group for men in association with Fertility Network UK and the Him Fertility campaign. And what's really lovely about the group now is we've got probably a group of about 12 to 15 regulars that pretty much come every single month. Um, they're all at different stages of their fertility journey. Some are uh, way beyond fertility and are now kind of childless, not by choice. And some are kind of still in investigation. Some are looking for sperm donors. That You know, they're all, all different kind of stories. But what happens in this group now is our regulars support a lot of new guys that are dropping in so we end up with this really amazing kind of true peer-to-peer support me toby and rod are there to kind of hold the space but the guys end up actually looking after each other and what inevitably happens is that the chat box is always really busy the guys always chatting amongst themselves but people pick up little nuggets of information and education and, and kind of ideas that they haven't found anywhere else. And what that often leads to is these guys then go off and do a bit more research or they find, uh, you know, a medical professional that, that they've heard about or, or, you know, go and research and they go on and get further treatment. And we've had guys, you know, as a direct result of that support group, go off, get medical advice and support and have then gone on to father their own children when they thought it was never going to be possible. Um, so there's that side of it, but there's also the side of just knowing that you're not alone. You know, fertility struggles can be a real, a really isolating experience. Typically, you know, most women or, or a lot of women will go off and they will find support, whether it's through a friend or possibly through a support group. The guys don't tend to do that. And while the idea of a support group may not sound amazing, the way it's run is really relaxed and accessible. For those that are are a bit more kind of reserved or a bit anxious, as you say, or cautious about sharing their story, there's no pressure to join in at all. And there's no pressure because it's on Zoom. You can sit there, you can change your name, you know, once you're logged in. Um, you can keep your camera off, you can stay muted. And, and a lot of guys do that. They just sit and listen and they'll be picking up, you know, little hints and tips and they'll get that kind of feeling of not being alone. And that's enough for them. But I mean, you know, I think it was maybe our second or third meeting 
and this is probably one of my highlights over the last kind of two years, was we had a guy in, in the group once who hadn't had his camera on, hadn't contributed in any way, shape or form, which is absolutely fine. But just as we were actually beginning to wrap up, he put his camera on and he said, oh, guys, do you mind if I chip in? I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, what, to tell us what's going on. And he shared his story to, to this group, to, to us all. And then he told us that he hadn't spoken to anybody else about his fertility issues at all. No friends, no family. He barely spoke to his wife about it. Yet, actually, he felt safe enough in, in our group to, to actually come on and, and share it. And that was such a powerful moment for me and Toby. It's like, wow, you know, we're making a difference here. And that's, yeah, we, we love it. Of course, it's hard to know how going through fertility treatment might affect us. But certainly there are some stories that highlight how damaging the process can be to our sense of self. Yeah, it's... I think there's a lot of guilt. You know, certainly when, you know, it, if the guy's got suboptimal sperm and that's leading to them having to go through IVF and he's then seeing his, his wife or partner go through invasive treatments, hormone therapy, you know, appointment and scan after scan. You know, guy, you know, a guy's kind of instinct is always to fix things. You know, we're, we're kind of fixers. You, you know, come to us with a problem, we'll, we'll want to fix it. You know, go to a woman with a problem, she'll understand and she'll empathise and listen. So when a guy kind of sees his, his partner going through that and it's as a result of, you know, something on his behalf, it's not necessarily, it's not his fault, there's no fault here, it's just it, it is what it is, then that does bring a huge amount of guilt. Then there's the kind of that stigma that we kind of talk about with male fertility and, and the kind of shame or, 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 you know, feeling less of a man because you can't father your own child or your sperm is, is low quality or you've got no sperm. That strikes incredibly deep for a man. Um, and that can, that can turn up all sorts of problems for a guy in terms of kind of um, that guilt and shame, but also kind of then mental health issues. So, you know, we, we've had guys talk about depression on the, on the support group. We've had guys talk about suicide on the support group. Um, we've even had a guy talk about him, you know, having a conversation with his wife about it being okay if she wants to divorce him because he can't father a child with her. I mean, that is just devastating to think that couples are going through that. Anthony Ribb is a counsellor with nearly 20 years' experience and an accredited and active member of the British Infertility Counselling Association. Men, we're, again, we're very good at saying, everything's okay, nothing wrong, I'm getting on with things. And yet from the partner's perspective, they're seeing the love of their life a bit more intolerant, a bit more angry, um, working longer hours, so leaving earlier, um, coming back later, working weekends, um, working out maybe a bit more, um, overeating, undereating, not sleeping as much, um, so a bit more kind of frustration in them. So there's a lot of behavioural issues that their partners will be noticing, um, and it's important, again, to be able to step back and appreciate that maybe not everything is great and maybe seeking some support would be helpful so if for men it's to do with sperm uh, as you mentioned earlier it's this kind of sense of identity 
they may go to the gym more to bulk up more or to do more exercise to be better or to work more to be the best at something else to prove that you know i am good at at this and this and this so again it all comes out in different ways but men might turn around to their um, partner and say i'm going to do you uh, a favor and i'm going to give you a get out of jail free card if you want to leave me you can leave me you can be with somebody that can provide you with children i'm not going to stand in your way because that's what's it, that that's important to you so they 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 think sometimes that that's what their partner's going to choose i i don't want to be with you because you can't provide me with children of course yeah their partner might be very angry at times but that's generally down to the situation rather than the partner themselves so there's that element i've never met people that have said thank you i'm going to take you up in your offer i'm out of here um and i guess that gives you a sense of how low possibly how depressed not always but how low how depressed a person can be i guess and more relevant how low their confidence or or, or esteem self esteem has become as a result of this um which is which is yeah which is difficult the other thing i'd say kind of also to is if there's a pregnancy loss i a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy or any other pregnancy loss i think at any time the pregnancy loss is is an awful thing to have to endure um but uh, when you've gone through for so much in order to try and get pregnant and then you've become pregnant it's such a happy moment that after everything all the injections all the invasiveness all the tests you're pregnant it's like phew it's it's amazing feeling and then sadly either for whatever reasons there's a, if it hasn't doesn't work there's a pregnancy loss it it truly can be so devastating for for the person for the couple um it, it's 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 really not nice so while our fertility is mostly already set way before we're born there must be something we can do to try and edge the odds a little bit more in our favor richard sharp yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. It's, it's, it's horribly boring. It's to become, you know, um, Mr. Boring and unimaginative. Um, you know, you need to avoid hot baths is a, uh, something for sure. But I think most people would be um, having showers these days, of, of avoiding um, unnecessarily tight underwear uh, and trousers, etc. These are small things, um, but not smoking. Uh, not drinking too much and certainly not to uh, not to excess on uh, too many occasions. And but I think diet is the most important and in particular, you know, not eating processed food and not eating uh, a, a modern Western high fat diet, I think, is the most important thing that couples could do. You have, you have to remember that in our evolution, which is what shaped how our bodies work today in our evolution, Food was in short supply. You know, we didn't, we, we would get meat only occasionally. We would have to be, you know, surviving on lots of uh, fruit and plants and things like that. And, and our bodies and the way our bodies work 
are adjusted to that. Cheryl Homer. So lifestyle and diet is very important. I mean, it's very important for our health generally. We are all aware of that. And there's no doubt that it's very important for our fertility, whether we're men or women. But I think where we we get a little bit um, out of kilter here is when men are always told that, well, if you have a problem, the only thing you can do is change your lifestyle, take a few supplements, and there's nothing else we can do. We must remember that dietary changes and lifestyle changes are only part of the problem. They're not going to be the only problem. So they may make things an awful lot worse, but they aren't usually the sole cause unless you are a drug addict or you're a very heavy smoker or you're an alcoholic or you binge drink on a regular basis or you completely overdose on caffeine. Um, I think there are certain things that will definitely um, those things will definitely have an impact, a considerable impact on your fertility. And anything in extreme is is going to be detrimental to your fertility. I get a lot of people saying to me, oh, well, you know, I, I, I smoke 20 cigarettes a day, but my mate smokes 60 and he's got five kids running around. Yes, that's true. These things do happen. And it's it's almost like you have to ask the question about how does it affect an individual? We're all different. Smoking doesn't always cause cancer in people. But if you smoke and you get cancer, it's probably because you're smoking. And it's the same thing with fertility. We have to look at it in that way as well. So we, we can't just say, well, my mate is doing fine, having a bad lifestyle. It might not be good for you. And for men tempted to use a little assistance in the gym. Anabolic steroids and some protein supplements, we don't know which ones they are, uh, are, are completely detrimental to a man's fertility. And I don't think men really understand how their sort of hormones work in their body, because if they did, and they wanted to to start a family, they would think very seriously about taking anabolic steroids. So when you take steroids, you're taking a testosterone-like supplement, and that goes straight into your bloodstream. So your blood testosterone levels go up. When you have testosterone levels going up in your bloodstream, that helps develop the growth of muscle tissue and bone tissue. But what it ends up doing is it ends up stopping your own body from making testosterone because your own body is thinking, I've got enough here. And where you make testosterone is in your testes. So what happens is the more testosterone you get in your blood, the lower the testosterone levels in the testes. And that's where your sperm are made. And it needs testosterone to make sperm. So the bigger the muscles, the smaller the testes, the lower the testosterone levels, the lower the sperm count. And it can actually stop you producing sperm altogether. Now, if you stop taking anabolic steroids, your sperm production may come back. It may take up to two years for it to come back. On the odd occasion, it may never come back. So... I would really be very reluctant to suggest taking anabolic steroids. I think if you want to build up muscle strength, eat some good steaks or 
mushy peas <laughs> and um, do a little bit of upper body workout. I think taking steroids is something that you absolutely shouldn't be doing. And in terms of protein shakes, we worry about the additional supplements that can be in those. Even though you may have a list of ingredients, a lot of these supplements don't come from countries where there's strong regulation on what they can and cannot put in there. So they put in a little bit of uh, testosterone-like supplements to make you feel good and then you want to buy more. And what about the wider issue of sperm counts? Should we be worried about the decrease that we've seen in the last few decades? Richard Sharp. Uh, I mean, I think the jury is still out to some extent, but in, uh, if we use Denmark as, our, our, as a sort of the uh, canary in the coal mine, where they've had the lowest sperm count um, for um, the last 20, 25 years, and, and they've just been sort of overtaken by Norway, I think, the last uh, few years. Um, but um, their sperm counts have remained in young men They've also got the best data, I should say, because um, they've been uh, screening uh, lots of young men from the general population. And in the last 15 years, sperm counts haven't declined anymore. They're still at uh, stayed at their um, uh, rather low level. Um, and and it looks like most other countries are heading towards where uh, that level um, at different rates. Um so I, I'm not convinced at the moment that, that things are going to get, um, we're going to get to the point where sperm counts get any lower. But I think they're already at a at a um, a stage where, as I said, in a in a modern societal context, um, with trying for pregnancies only starting for trying to pregnancies uh, when the female partner is in her thirties, uh, uh, I think that you know the damage is already being done. Um, we're, we're beyond below replacement level in most countries in the world now. And there are only a few that are still above it and they're in rapid decline towards it. So I, I think we'll have a major um, shortage in the world population in the decades to come. And it may sound a surprising thing to say, but I think that that's what we're facing up to sometime down the road. I don't think we have um, any idea as to how that will pan out, but you can see that it will cause enormous societal disruption. And um, I, and in my sort of darker moments, I, I always say to people, you know, don't don't rule out the fact that young people are going to turn around and say, well, why should we be working for all these old folk? You know, uh, let's just why don't we just get rid of them? Um, so, you know, we've, we've created enough problems for the next generation as it is. Um, so uh, why not get rid of the old generation? So that's a, that's a bit of dark uh, thinking. But uh, as I say, we don't know how things would pan out other than the fact that it's going to create, you know, social disruption because it, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't work. Um, and... Will so will things change and young couples start um, trying for pregnancies earlier? Well, I don't know. You know, at the moment, it's difficult to envisage that being the case, isn't it? Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't think we can foretell the future. And can Chris Lawson at least give us a bit of hope? Actually, sometimes it's about changing the dream rather than giving up on your dream. Um, 
like I say, we we were actively looking at alternatives. Um, we had our names down on a sort of a register for sort of egg donation. Um, thankfully, we had we had uh, a, one uh, embryo frozen from a previous treatment, and we went to see the consultant and. And she pulls out this massive lever arch file, almost wheels it in. There were so many notes there. And she said, look, you know, I think we, we, we need to call time on the fresh rounds of IVF. But, you know, let's, let's you know, remember we've got one in the freezer and you never know. It's not that great quality, but uh, you just never know what happens. And um, that is a miracle. That is my daughter, Rosie you look back and you sort of think wow that is a it was a long journey it was really tough through that but it's it's one of those things that I am absolutely delighted that we we kept the faith and you do have to keep the faith because it only takes one um, and there is always hope from that perspective so um, you know a big moment I think I think the only thing that I would say related to that happy ending is that when we were finally pregnant and we thought, my God, this, this looks like it can happen for us. You know, the actual pregnancy, the, that nine months, isn't a nine-month journey, it's a six years and nine-month journey. All of that pressure, all of that expectation around the fertility treatment is there through every single month of that, fertility, uh, that, that pregnancy journey. So, so uh, until Rosie was in my arms... Uh, I, I just, I did not relax, in all honesty. It was the most magical moment of my life, I have to say. And I think it was it was one of those points where she, she reached over and grabbed hold of my hand and, and I just thought, we have been through so much. And I was so proud of Trish, my wife, because she was an absolute rock throughout the process. And when I was low, she picked me up. And when she was low, I picked her up. Um, but, you know, she made a lot of sacrifices to get to that point, And we never forget that. And, and in fact, I think it, it's probably made us stronger as a couple. This has been the Problem With Men podcast. Thank you for listening. In our next episode, we'll be exploring negative body image. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. It really helps us to get the word out. Until next time, goodbye. The Problem With Men podcast is an Octopus Industries production. Produced and presented by Chris Dodd and produced by Sandra Kabasinguzi.